Morning, Salt City. Good to see you guys this morning. So if you've been coming to Salt City for any length of time, you know that we value teaching through books of the Bible. We want the Bible to speak for itself and the authority to not rest in any teacher, but actually for the authority in our church to rest in the word of God, which is weird. I don't know if you guys knew that, but most people out in the world don't believe that the Bible is true. And in fact, if you begin to tell people that you believe the Bible is true, you are going to seem strange to those around you. One of the main arguments against the truth of the Bible that you might hear kind of out there is that the Bible is full of contradictions. And so basically, people believe that science is based on observation and fact, and the Bible and religion in general would be placed in the category of personal, private belief or faith. So what's pitted against each other in our culture is the facts and faith. Faith is painted to be sort of a pipe dream. Christians are painted as being people who just believe in the Bible, and there's not really any reasons for that. And scientists are painted as people who believe in science because of reason, because of facts. There's a guy I was reading this week, his name's Leslie Newbegin, and he's talking about this reality. And I want to read you a quote from him because I think he makes a really important observation about science that will be helpful for us as we kind of move forward in this discussion. Leslie Nubian says this, The work of philosophers and historians of science in the present century has shown very clearly that the whole work of modern science rests on faith commitments, which cannot themselves be demonstrated by the methods of science. The rationality of the universe is not something that science can prove. It has to be assumed as the starting point of scientific effort. And that assumption is a faith commitment. So you see what he's saying? The entire enterprise of science is based on the belief that cannot be proven scientifically or empirically that the world is in fact a rational place. Science believes that the world is rational and reasonable and therefore it can be observed and categorized in a certain way. So it turns out that science starts with a faith commitment. And what we'll see as we dive into this text where the Apostle Paul begins to sort of show us what Scripture is all about, we'll, we'll see that faith maybe isn't what we think it is. Faith, in a biblical sense, involves our reason. So what we're actually going to do is we're going to sort of back up this claim that the Bible is universally true. Okay, so what I'm saying is that is not a personally held faith commitment that we have as a church that doesn't impact your life. What we're saying is that the Bible is universally true in the sense that it is a fact. 
that applies to everyone's life, no matter what their religion is or what they claim to believe. It is a fact, the the way that we normally think about scientific facts. And so what we're actually going to do is we're going to look at three evidences the Bible is true, not just for Christians. That the Bible is universally true. And those three reasons are going to be that Scripture is internally consistent, Scripture is widely impactful, and Scripture is personally examinable. Okay, let's just take those one at a time. First of all, Scripture is internally consistent. And again, we're in Acts chapter 17. We're looking at verses 2 and 3 to start. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Okay, so remember where we're at in the story. Last week, Paul had just entered Macedonia to a place called Philippi. Now he and his traveling companions have moved on to a place called Thessalonica. So he's at the synagogue, which is his normal practice. If there's a synagogue in town, he is going to go there and seek to prove the truth of Christianity to a Jewish audience. So here's what he does in this specific instance. He seeks to show the Jewish community the internal consistency of the scriptures. And specifically, what he is seeking to show them, because they already believe the Bible, he's seeking to show them that the Bible is all about Jesus. In other words, that the Old Testament predicted and prophesied the outcomes that actually took place in the first century, specifically regarding the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So what was prophesied in the Old Testament took place in the first century in actual history. It could be observed, touched, seen, and heard. And we're not talking about just events, we're talking about a person whose name is Jesus. And so here's the way, normally, that Paul argues from the Old Testament that this is, in fact, what it says. He uses David as an example. Let me recap for you something that we've already been through in this series from Acts chapter 13, starting with verse 35. So here's what Paul preached in Acts 13, 35 through 38. He said, So it is also stated elsewhere, You will not let your Holy One see decay. Now when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors, and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. So what Paul's doing in this passage is he's actually quoting from Psalm 16.10, where King David, who was the anointed king of Israel, is praying. And he is saying to God, you will not let your Holy One see decay. 
But here was the intellectual problem that many people wrestled with in that day, and that's that David was dead. So David's tomb was in Jerusalem. So that's a real problem because he's saying to God, essentially, you're not going to let your anointed king see decay. So the question is, then why is David dead? And here's Paul's example and also Peter's example that they use throughout the book of Acts. They say the reason that David died is because he was a type of anointed king. In other words, he wasn't the final anointed king. He was speaking, even in his prayer life, as a prophet. And he was looking forward to the true and better anointed king, namely Jesus. And here's how we know that Jesus was the true and better anointed king. Because when he died, he didn't stay dead. So the evidence that that prophecy was actually fulfilled during the first century is that you couldn't find Jesus' tomb in Jerusalem. He lived, he was dead for three days after dying on the cross, and now the entire proclamation that we've been seeing in the book of Acts is that Jesus is alive. And so within the Christian worldview, you have to grapple with its internal consistency. How do you understand that the Jewish people had been anticipating the Messiah for thousands of years and that Jesus came and did what the Old Testament said that he would do? Now, I think this is actually a helpful principle for us as we have conversations with unbelievers all the time. This principle of internal consistency. I remember when I was in philosophy 101 class, one of the first sentences out of my professor's mouth in college was, well, none of you actually believe the Bible, do you? Because the Bible says that you can't wear clothes made from two types of fabric. And so if you really believe the Bible, then you probably wouldn't be wearing the t-shirt that you're wearing. End of discussion. Now let's move on to some real rational thinking in philosophy class and some actually intelligent people, and let's not listen to that ancient book called the Bible. Which actually, from the perspective of the internal consistency of the Bible, in other words, that the Bible has one message that runs throughout, and that that message is about Jesus, which is the key to understanding the Bible, you can actually answer that question rather easily, that argument. Okay, for example, from Galatians 5, chapter 6, here's what the Apostle Paul says regarding the Old Testament, the law, those types of things. He says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Okay? So, here's the Old Testament understanding of circumcision, okay? This guy Abraham was asked to be circumcised by God after 
he already believed in God's promise. The foundation of God's relationship with Abraham was belief in the promises of God. And as a result of his belief in the promises of God, God asked him to be circumcised, and subsequently the people of God were asked to believe the law of God. The law of God was split into what's called the ceremonial law, which only applied to Israel at a specific time and place in history, and also the moral law, which is for all people of all time. And what Paul is saying in Galatians is that what has always mattered is not the ceremonial law, but faith working through love. And he explains further that faith obeys the moral law of God. The moral law of God is actually the way that we express love to one another. And so if you take passages from the Old Testament and you read them outside of the scope of the story of all of Scripture, it would be easy to think that those prohibitions no longer apply. That's not actually true. They do apply just in a different way to the people of God now than they did then. So one of the arguments for the truth of Scripture is that it actually forms one cohesive story about life and it gives us one cohesive picture of our Savior, Jesus. It is an internally consistent worldview. Okay, when people heard this in the first century, they reacted very differently to what Paul was saying. But here's what we can say about it. That scripture is widely impactful. Okay, let's continue to read through the story. I think we're going to learn a lot about ourselves. Acts chapter 17, verses 4 through 5. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. Okay, so here's what happened. Everyone who heard the word of God explained in a reasonable way by the Apostle Paul. He wasn't a fire and brimstone guy. He was more like an academic, just walking them through the truth of the scripture. They reacted to it. It impacted them, either positively or negatively. And so first of all, in the, in the passage, we see that there were quite a few people who were persuaded. And what's interesting about it is it wasn't just one type of person that was persuaded. It wasn't just the Jewish men or the Greek women who were persuaded, but there were actually many Jews, many devout Greeks, and there were also leading women. In other words, the people who were impacted and were persuaded by Paul's message were a good representation of the city in which they were in. 
many different kinds of people were impacted by the word of God, which I think points to the universal truth of the Bible. Because if the Bible was only impactful to a certain subset of people in the world, then we could say, oh, that's just sort of an ethnocentric thing. That's just for them, written by them. But the truth is, even in our day, Christianity is a universal religion. There's actually more Christians in China than there are in the United States. You might hear all the time, well, Christianity is just a Western invention. That's not true at all. It actually started in the Middle East, and it spread over the whole world. Did you know that Jesus wasn't even white? Shocking, isn't it? We often think, I mean, the picture that hung in my kitchen, he was. What? Okay, you can, you can think about that one. That one's maybe tough for some of you to swallow. But, but so many people were persuaded. And then this is interesting. It doesn't say, but some were not persuaded by the arguments. It doesn't say, say some listened to this argument about the internal consistency of the Bible and having reasoned their way through it, decided that the arguments were not consistent and were not true. It says they were jealous. In other words, the picture you get here is there's some Jewish leaders who are part of the synagogue and they begin to see the impact that Paul and Silas are having on the people that they have presumably been explaining the word of God to day after day. And they start to see their social standing slip away. They start to see their impact as leaders slip away. It's not that they have a problem with the arguments. They have a problem with the impact that those arguments would have on their lives. In order for them to accept those arguments, they would actually have to give something up. And so here's what they begin to do. Something that's incredibly irrational. They go into town, and it says, I love the exact wording of this. They took some wicked men of the rabble. I don't know exactly what the rabble was, but these are just the lowlifes of town. The most despicable criminals and all of those things, and they are so mad and so jealous that they give up all reason. They throw reason to the side. And they grab these people and they say, we're going to go beat these guys up. We're going to find them. So they go to this guy Jason's house. Paul and Silas apparently already gone. They rip Jason out of the house. They're about to, to beat him up. They're going to you know, chase Paul and Silas down later. They absolutely lose their minds. Here's what's true. When Christianity comes face to face with any other worldview, the argument ultimately digresses into name calling because Christianity is the only internally consistent worldview because it's the true one. Because it's a fact, it is internally consistent. And so when you, for example, Watch a YouTube video, and it's a debate from 
a highly intelligent evolutionary biologist and a highly intelligent Christian apologist, eventually what will happen, and I've seen this happen over and over again, specifically as Richard Dawkins is debating some Christian apologist, he will end up saying something like, what you're asking me to do is believe in something like the flying spaghetti monster. And it's just so irrational, I can't even deal with that. Do you know why he does that? Why he gets mad and starts basically making fun of the Christian worldview? Because when it is presented to him in a plausible way, he only has two options. Bow the knee to Jesus Christ. Give up his social standing. Give up his position at Oxford. Give up his academic credentials and bow the knee to Jesus or become jealous Form a mob and start name calling. At the end of the day, if you really look at the arguments for Christianity and you look at the arguments for other worldviews, there is no comparison. And so you have to make a choice. And unfortunately, these men in Thessalonica decided that they were going to make a choice to let their emotions and desires overcome their logic and reasonableness. Okay, so Paul and Silas move on. And they move on to a place called Berea, which has become, since that point, famous because of how the Bereans responded. And they answer the question for us, how do I go about examining the questions? And we see that scripture is personally examinable. What I mean by that is that it is accessible to everyone. Here's what Acts 17, 10 through 12 says about sort of the next leg of this journey. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. Okay, so immediately what we see is that Christianity is for the masses. It's not for spiritual gurus. There's no elitism in Christianity, which is part of the reason that God has put his revelation in the form of a book so that people can look for themselves. Now, here's what's interesting is that Luke describes the Bereans as noble. He says that the reason that they responded the way that they did to the scriptures is because they were more noble than the Jews in Thessalonica. So noble means of an exalted moral or mental character or excellence. They had the type of character that they knew that they at least had 
to listen to the arguments before they dismiss them. They at least had to read the Bible for themselves. They at least had to sit in a small group with some other Bereans and discuss the scriptures themselves before they would reject it. So here's what you got to see. These were not gullible people. These were not backwoods people who just heard the scripture and said, well, I'm not really going to think about it. I'm just going to believe it because the Apostle Paul seems smart, and so I'm going to listen to him. No. They went to the Bible themselves with inquisitiveness, and they came to see for themselves what it said. Here's what's true. If you're really going to internalize that the Bible is universally true, you have to study the Bible for yourself. Please, if you're one of those people who has said, the Bible is full of contradictions, and you have not read the Bible cover to cover yourself, please stop saying that. It's intellectually dishonest. At least tell the truth. Don't say the Bible's full of contradictions. Just say, I don't have time to read the Bible because I don't think it's important. Which is kind of crazy, don't you think? Since the Bible is the most well-sold and most read and beloved book in human history by far, and many very intelligent people have been convinced by its arguments, don't you think it would at least be worth your time to study through it, to look at it, and to see for yourself if it is true? Guys, my dad at work had a friend who was Jewish, and they had a lot of different conversations about the Bible over many years. Lots of after-work discussions that went on for hours, and this man happened to be a very intelligent person. And so they would talk and talk and talk and talk, and eventually the arguments sort of came to a standstill, and they weren't budging. And so my dad went home. I still remember this. He had this brown and tan big NIV study Bible. And I remember my dad took that Bible under his arm along with his briefcase to work one day. And I asked him why he was bringing it to work. And he said that he was bringing it to his friend, Evan. And remember my dad brought that Bible to his friend, Evan. And then a couple months went by and didn't hear anything about what had happened. I was probably in elementary school at the time. And then I remember my dad sharing at our family dinner one night, a couple months later, that he was absolutely blown away because Evan had sort of used his intelligence to read the entire Bible in two months. So he had started in Genesis and read all the way to Revelation, and he just walked into my dad's office, and he threw the Bible down on my dad's desk, and he said, I read it. And my dad had asked him to read Hebrews and Romans because he thought they were the books that, <laughs> he, he thought they were the books that, that most clearly illustrated that the Old Testament was fulfilled in the New Testament. My dad said, okay, so you read Romans and Hebrews, and you want to talk about it. He goes, no, I read the whole thing. 
goes, you read the whole Bible? My dad's like, I don't think I've ever read the Bible in two months. It's like, I read the whole Bible and it's all true. He said, it says the same thing from the beginning to end. I see how the, the New Testament fulfills the Old Testament. And I see how there is one consistent story. And that story is all about Jesus. You see, people can have arguments with you. People can bring, bring their best shot. You can talk and talk and talk and talk about the worldview of Christianity. But the way to really be of noble character and to examine the claims of Christianity is not by talking to a person. It is by going to the source. See, guys, it doesn't really matter what I think it doesn't matter what Jordan thinks. It doesn't matter what our elders think. It doesn't matter what your parents think. What matters to us is the authority of this book. We believe that God has put his eternal revelation into a book and that we are to submit to this revelation. And so what I want to invite us to do as a church is to be Bereans. I want to invite us as individuals to be Bereans. I want us to be characterized as people with such noble character that we will put aside the smartphone, that we'll turn off Netflix, and that we will just learn, that we will examine the scriptures, that we will go to the source. And my encouragement to you, if you are not yet a believer, is that you have no right to be an unbeliever until you examine the Bible for yourself. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, thank you for this passage. Um, thank you for um, weeks at church where we more, more turn on the left side of our brain and um, we're forced to think and we see that um, our faith as Christians is reasonable, that it's based on an internally consistent revelation from you. Thank, thank you that you are the smartest person in the universe and that you have um, rationally and purposefully communicated to us. That's just so cool. God, how humble you are that you um, will explain things to us in a way that we can understand. And I do just ask that um, by your grace, we would be people of noble character who examine your scriptures daily. In Jesus' name, amen.